Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, the lead mentor here at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and online mentorship. We have a 10-minute free consultation for any of those struggling with telehealth, so reach out to us at tkex.org. Today, I'm joined by Leonard Van Gelder. Did I pronounce that right? That should have been the first question I, I asked you. No, you actually did very well. That's, that's one of the better first efforts I've, I've, I've had. So. Awesome. And was a South African background for you, Leonard? Correct. Yeah. South Africa originally. Awesome. Awesome. So Leonard, I've been following you, Leonard, for a while now. You post some really valuable, great content. I've stolen a lot of your tips and tricks with, with the videos in my own practice, and it's, it's been really helpful. So I'm really keen to dive into your story, your clinical background and how you apply the BPS model through a psychologically informed ACT lens. So Leonard is a clinic owner from Grand Rapids, Michigan, also an educator, physical therapist, and really keen to dive into it. So thank you for making the time today, Leonard. No, thanks for having me, Daniel. Appreciate it. Leonard, what is your story? Uh, well, um, you know, I think uh, just like many other physios, many other uh, movement professionals as a whole, um, you know, we, we all had a pain story. Um, we all had an injury story uh, to some degree. Um, I think that uh, I, I was a little oblivious, uh, honestly, to um, the role of that. Uh, it was sort of like that was a concurrent story with my, my journey to um, kind of learn a little bit more about movement. Um, but um, I think that as I revisit um, people asking this question, I think I have to say that I probably started off um, dealing with uh, pain at an early age with migraines as a child. And um, as uh, we've all kind of learned um, sort of the impact of uh, early onset uh, kind of pain presentations, things like that, I think um, other pains and things and migration of symptoms uh, throughout uh, childhood and into adulthood uh, I think are a lot more meaningful and I have a better <clears throat> respect for where the literature and, and uh, where I've gone clinically based on um, sort of my own experience with, with uh, pain and, and the, the social um, influences that it had growing up. Uh, I would say um, uh, the movements parts really came into being for me um, kind of the, um, kind of teenage years, uh, getting more involved with martial arts, more and more, more involved with um, stunts and performance and things like that. And um, that sort of led to its own string of injuries and things like that. And so further curiosity about uh, recovery and performance and um, just kind of followed along through um, at first, uh, I feel like sort of neglecting um, my calling and thinking like, okay, this is, you know, I, I can't go back to college. I was sort of like a uh, high school dropout. I thought I would figure out some way to just piece part this together, and and I think many people could, even looking in retrospect, piece part it together. But um, <clears throat> ended up taking the journey back to college. Uh, did athletic training uh, and physical therapy, um, personal training, and uh, kind of got involved in the literature, um, uh, just contributing to literature and also literature review, sort of early on in my undergrad. And uh, during that time, started to question. Uh, everything I knew. I think the the first realm the entry point for me was really flexibility. Um, I was very interested in kind of a lot of the mainstay things in the early 2000s with the the, the push on dynamic uh, versus static stretching, and so uh, was involved in my first kind of research study there. And as I was doing the literature background review, 
really kind of realizing that there's inconsistencies in this whole kind of mechanical uh, physiology of it. And, and uh, there's a lot of data in this idea of this sense perception modification. I'm like, oh, that's really kind of interesting, but didn't think much about it, how, how that would influence me now, 15 almost years later. Um, but I think that was sort of my, my introduction to it. And, and then the continuous curiosity in the literature uh, and then starting to see, obviously, as social media for physio and for Cairo and for just movement and, and rehab sort of grew, I think that we all started to pool our knowledge. And to some degree, you know, I think we all learn probably faster than previous generations just because we had such access to information much quicker. So just kind of following that journey in my own journey. Um, <clears throat> when I um, finished um, uh, physio grad school, um, ended up doing uh, uh, the um, certification with Adrian Lowe, the that was originally EI, or originally uh, ISPI uh, EIM. So it was part of the first class there, and I think that helped to connect some some dots for me um, that I really needed, and, and kept in touch with with Adrian over the years, and really appreciated his insights. Um, and certainly, just kind of gathering from so many people, just like like everyone here has been. Um, so many individuals that I mean, we could spend an hour just listing uh, uh, names, but uh, started a practice uh, for another company uh, that uh, was um, primarily dealing with chronic and complex pain. Uh, started a pain division in that company and um, started to just put out some of my own um, content a little bit more related to pain. Uh, I had a originally education slash kind of consulting company, Dynamic Principles, which ultimately um, uh, kind of grew and started being my sort of outlet for, for those concepts. And um, now we're, we're here, um, you know, 2008, uh, uh, end of 2018, sorry, 2018 is when uh, uh, officially uh, left the other company and started a uh, process for opening my clinic. And March of uh, 2019 is when I opened my own practice. Um, I've got uh, a wonderful clinician who I have serving as my clinic director, David Schwartz. Um, very fortunate to have him on board. Also, came in ready with a psychologically informed perspective, and so it's been wonderful to have been able to play off of uh, uh, off of each other in that realm. And uh, we've just continued to build a practice and starting to lay the foundation for some um, clinical research uh, kind of uh, things that we're going to center out of this this clinic. So. I think that um, you know there's a lot of good opportunities, and certainly, as we've discussed earlier, I think telehealth and, and pain is going to be a very interesting realm, and, and something we're also looking at a little bit more detail um, where we may do some some research in, in that realm beyond even once we get out of the COVID restrictions. And so, um, I think in this process, not only um, that I have this sort of professional journey, but then I think uh, a lot of the over kind of crossover between my own pain, my own struggles, um, started to really see meaningful effect of the, the research and, and um, a lot of this kind of understanding, uh, including the psychological and social aspects of a little bit more internalizing that for myself. And um, as I progressed in that, I um, was kind of guided um, into a lot of the ACT literature and was introduced in the ACT about three years ago, maybe probably closer to four, but I think three years ago, I started to just really kind of um, deep delving into the available research or, or, or research as well as the books that are available. 
Um, and then this past year just uh, went through um, Stephen Hayes' immersion course. Um, and uh, that's been really uh, insightful as well. And so in that journey, started to look at Stephen Hayes' journey, which um, I think probably overlaps with a lot of ours as well, where we realize sometimes we we start to have these ideas, but we have to kind of back the bus up and we have to start looking at what is the kind of underlying um, uh, processes and mechanisms that are underneath here. And so I would say the last eight to 10 months has been really kind of backing the bus up, figuring out where I stand, where, where, where I'm looking through uh, at the world and um, starting to kind of rebuild even um, uh, the way that I integrate some of these psychological principles with clinical practice, because I uh, started to find that there was some disconnect, I, I felt like, with the way that we were trying to force uh, some of these properties into the rehab and movement world. And um, the the truth of the matter is we still, we had to sort of um, uh, reevaluate and reconceptualize our movement uh, as well. And so that's kind of been this this later stage of the journey where we've brought in sort of a underlying framework and underlying uh, understanding of some of the theories um, that overlap with what we're trying to do from a movement perspective, but certainly are 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 very comfortable in the psychological and uh, emotional and social realms as well. So I think that gets us up to speed. <laughs> awesome, awesome! What a journey, and and the constant curiosity to keep learning is apparent, and it's really cool. And I know that some people are also a bit uh, lost, or they don't know where to start when it comes to gathering the resources or going to courses in relation to psychologically informed practice. So tell us a bit more about the, the immersion and the immersion experience and also how you, you gathered information, how you upskilled in general when it comes to psychologically informed practice for those out there. Absolutely. So uh, number one was obviously starting to uh, pair with some community psychologists because um, knowing that, you know, that there are just at a certain point in time, um, it becomes evident where you are um, really opening the door for someone to pursue uh, counseling fully. And, um, you know, we've, we've, we have many clients that come to us and they're like, I, I have no purpose for a psychologist. I have no purpose for a counselor. I don't have anything like that. And, and just to a large degree, we are trying to build that foundation of what to pull from the act work, psychological flexibility through our movement experiments, our movement variability to sort of open up that door um, to, to allow that to occur. So having, I would say that, that relationship with some local, um, counselors, psychologists, I think is, is probably step one, because at a certain point in time, there's, there's, there's just a realm that becomes quite evident when, when we start to get into people's, um, you know, some of their, their, their family dynamics, some of their history, some of their traumas and things like that, that arises in the sessions. Um, you, you have to have that colleague that you can, you can you can partner with to help them through this this as these things sort of open up. So I think that's that's step one, is is having that partner. Now that being said, <clears throat> having gone to um, some conferences, there are some psychologists who say that you know uh, there are some communities where there are none of those resources and where you are basically kind of guiding people to self help resources and different things that are available and and online resources. Now I think telehealth will be much more. Uh, accessible for from a psychological and counseling perspective uh, ongoing just that they have that uh, that extended more in-depth piece that that um, they will need at a certain point but that being said um, you yourself have to have a really strong 
base in it. And, and I think that's one of the things that we're all learning is that we need to get a little bit better at, at developing the skills. And, and like you, you said, we need a starting place. And so I would say that um, the best starting place that I found so far for most people is um, Act Made Simple from um, Russ Harris. Um, very, very, very um, easy to read resource, um, very practical across any kind of professional background. Um, I think that it's, it's, it's a wonderful entry point into this, this process. Um, the other option is also um, some of his more uh, client-oriented material, um, which is the happiness trap. I think those have been very good. Um, as you get comfortable with some of the your initial exposure with with act work, um, if that's the entry point that you come into, um, Stephen Hayes's uh, work is is where you want to start to explore to get a little understanding of the background. And right now, the um, uh, the um, my mind is is going for a moment. The um, kind of pull out my book, The Liberated Mind, A Liberated Mind from, um, from uh, uh, Stephen Hayes is a really good entry point for next step going from there. Now, I'm going to probably back the bus up a little bit, which is to say um, that, you know, again, what we're talking about with ACT is just kind of one sort of, one sort of application of, of um, some complex um, uh, behavioral understandings. And uh, certainly, um, psychology is bigger than act, and and there are many different uh, kind of uh, approaches. And, and I would say the most widely recognized, obviously, are cognitive behavioral therapies, of which act is part of that that heritage of that discipline. Uh, but there's some uh, kind of um, three waves of essentially kind of behavioral psychological kind of interventions that have gone over time, and um, much of what we have learned, I think, as physical therapists from an exposure standpoint and from a Behavioral change has been from a, um, some of the second wave of 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 kind of uh, cognitive imp- uh, approaches. Those are evolving quite a bit, and in this sort of third wave, where we're looking at essentially um, getting away from people having bad thoughts or broken thinking or things like that. So similar to the, what we see with with movement, you know, we, we worry about nocebo language related to um, you know uh, degenerative changes and you know, posture and things like that. In the same way, these mechanistic things have always been sort of present in the psychology realm too, of we need to think positive versus negative and things like that. And um, these are a bit of the second wave in earlier history. As we go to the third wave, we're realizing that's really not the case. And and we're more interested in the processes that are going behind it. Um, And ACT is sort of like one of these first generation of process-based therapies but there's a, there's a huge evolution going on with cognitive behavioral therapy that's process-based as well um, that, is, that is starting to happen. And we, um, you know, in, in my group, we are, we are sort of developed essentially our own kind of process-based approach to try and help to, to bridge that gap too um, because we feel like we, we all have to kind of be speaking the same language is this idea that there are these biopsychosocial processes that are sort of underlying um, uh, be, the potential for behavior change and for explaining current behavior as a whole. And so we're um, in this, this this place in time where we want to respect the tradition and draw from it. And there are things we will continue to get, get from some of the traditional kind of CBT approaches. But we want to be open to really a, a large change in the behavior and psychology world that's, that's undergoing. And we don't want to miss out on that by kind of sticking with some of these second wave things. 
And so hopefully without backing up, I can bring us back forward <laughs> to this is the reason that I've kind of emphasized a little bit the act-based um, kind of um, resources and um, the underlying theories behind that. Um, <clears throat> so my experience with it was that uh, I, I learned essentially the act hexaflex at first. And I started to um, figure out ways that I could, I could see <clears throat> some of these inflexibility uh, principles present with my clients, but honestly realizing more so in myself <laughs> as, as I was trying to change someone's beliefs or trying to change their thinking, realizing that, you know, over half the problem was on my end, um, and not on <laughs> necessarily on their end. My job was to try and be flexible enough to find a way to open up for them. And so sort of kind of learning how to dance around this hexaflex through, through these resources and through multiple uh, kind of uh, books and, and online coursework and resources help to um, improve my ability. And, and the research in ACT has said that, you know, it's one of those few sort of directions where you do get better with time. Um, you do get a little bit better with dancing around that. Um, and so I am, I'm still barely kind of, um, I would say entry level on this. Um, but I think that, um, I think that um, it has become very uh, helpful for me, um, both as uh, as the clinician trying to help someone to navigate this process, and I, I believe with the ref the um, the responses from my my clients and and seeing cases that I think I would have had a lot more challenge with in the past that they're 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 opening up sooner and easier and and they're more willing to adhere and and over time I follow up with them. And they're continuing to make gains with very little check-ins, and so I think that um, I think that you know better than it was, and and I think that engaging in this process fully um, has been very important with with helping people to to um, return to life and return to movement and return to activity, um, and again to put that power back into them um, to uh, you know again uh, increase their autonomy. And in this time, in this age, there's this ability to build this autonomy and this, you know, whether we call it resiliency or other things, <clears throat> the processes behind that I think is going to be very important, not just now, but as we even exit out of the uh, pandemic, well, not exit out of the pandemic, as we <laughs> work our way through the pandemic uh, going forward. I think these tools are important for us to um, develop as clinicians, even in movement. Um, and to help people to facilitate this in, in, the, in the long term, help them um, take on things both physically uh, or psychologically, um, emotionally, and from a, um, our normal kind of physical realm of, of movement. Awesome. It's giving us all the tools that we need, both personally as clinicians to, to navigate the clinical practice and as well as our patients to give them the self-management tools that they need for ongoing value-driven action, right? So what are some, exactly. some examples of how you're able to, to use some of the concepts um, in action in, in clinical practice? So um, I think most of us here have had some exposure to obviously um, trying to engage with a, with a patient or client um, uh, regarding introducing new ideas such as, you know what, your spine is not falling apart and you know, <laughs> that disc isn't going to splatter the back of the wall when you bend forward. So, you know, these are, are, are things that most of us have, have encountered. 
um, the difficult that we run into is that, you know, we try and explain pain or we try and introduce therapeutic neuroscience education to this individual. Um, and one option, maybe we, we just hit a wall and it's just not going, there's, it's not going anywhere. There's just not any entry point for it. Uh, the other is they have this wonderful um, response to the, the the content in in the session, and and they look so hopeful and so excited. And then the next time they they arrive, it's it's as if not only have they forgotten anything that you discussed, but it's it's almost like they're more firmly, rigidly held to their 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 beliefs than they were before. And so, from a clinical standpoint, obviously the the difficulty as a clinician is number one is is you don't you want to take it sometimes personally like oh, i didn't do a good enough job explaining it if i had explained it this way it would have you know it would have been it would have been uh so much better however um what we have to realize is that you know it's it, there's a lot of uh biopsychosocial processes uh including um some work stephen hayes talks about is that um it's literally as if the the sensory motor um, kind of integration of incoming information blocks off new information when people are are particularly struggling with psychological inflexibility as being a premise. Now, the the next mistake that you make is, <laughs> as I did, or most of us do, is that you 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 then think, oh well, now it's an easy out for me. It's sort of like the old McKenzie, like oh, let's see, you know, it's a uh, uh, that's a derangement that I got, I, I can't, it's irreducible or something like that. You know, I can't deal with their psychological inflexibility. Well, then, then you realize, wait a second, actually it's because you're <laughs> slightly inflexible, if not largely inflexible. And so in this process of kind of recognize that, which I admit, I still sometimes become very emotional. Uh, and, and, and I'm like, you know, you just, why aren't you getting it? But you, you come back to, okay, now it, you, you start to respect and appreciate that there are things happening in this person that's outside their control. And in that process, then what you work on is, okay, where can we go? And so act with this hexaflex has this ability for us to kind of shift between different corners and angles to see if there's a way that we can open them up so that they're more willing to participate in activity, more willing to do the movement, more willing to, um, you know, take on more physical stressors and get back into life. And, and so in this sort of dance of the hexaflex, you can, you can start to play with ways to open people up. And one of the most valuable tools that's taught um, early on in any kind of act approach is, is essentially this, um, what's called creative hopelessness. And so this creative hopelessness is, 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 is an effort to essentially uh, to engage in some of these processes to allow this person to realize that, you know, if they keep doing what they're doing, all they're going to do is get the same result, which is not what they're looking for. And by creating this sort of hopelessness sense, it can open up an opportunity for, Hey, look, what if I give you an option here and you got to decide and you have to have, a, you have to, this is again, a skill. I'm, I'm simplifying it way, way too much right now. But you, you basically have to see that there's this moment in time where you can add in some information, some hopeful little nuggets. And this is where our educational knowledge, our t and and our uh, explained pain comes in, is where we can use that towards a functional understanding that can allow them to be willing to move in, in that direction. And if you just try to go at it head on, it's not going to be there. But you can open up this little glimmer 
and then you know you just build on it and and the hope is the way we look at it is that the, the movement prescription that you're providing reinforces some of those flexibility processes reinforces you know what we look at for movement variability is a wonderful way to also look at psychological flexibility and looking at adaptation and exploring options and things like that and so we have this ability to sort of double dip between well, maybe you consider psychological here and movement over here and all these different things. Uh, but um, it truly gets an opportunity, I think, to shift people uh, in a direction where they were otherwise stuck. And so from a clinical standpoint, I think just trying to get people engaged and going forward, I think it's been very, very helpful with, with sort of these available kind of um, processes they've already developed for us. So working with the, the patient's beliefs and their understanding rather than just hammering them with, with education, educating them as though that's an intervention yeah. and then yeah. using creative hopelessness. Cause if they've tried, you know, all these different interventions over the past few years, they're still in your clinic. So obviously it hasn't been working and would they then maybe a bit of motivational interviewing or those kind of techniques to get them to open up, to try a movement experiment. And I love that you, you mentioned just like we can have, movement variability and how important that is to have more than one option for performing a task. We can also have psychological flexibility to think of or reframe a certain cognition or, or thought process or belief. So we're instilling that with, with the patients through these interventions, through these uh, psychologically informed interventions. Yeah, no, I think that's a very, very, very good uh, summary of the, of the content as a whole. And, um, yeah, it's um, definitely, um, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's, it's something where we are very well suited for this. And, and I think to, to a large degree, um, I think movement is going to be a wonderful entry point for people to be able to kind of enter into some of these psychological flexibility principles, especially when they're just, just uh, again, have that block, the idea that even that there is a, um, uh, a cognitive and emotional piece to their, their difficulty as a whole there. And, and I think um, we have such a wonderful opportunity to open up those doors and to, to help them in the long term as a human, helping people with life skills. Um, you know, sometimes I'm like, it's not like we're trying to, we're not trying to be psychologists. We're not trying to introduce psychological skills. We're really trying to develop these life skills for, for people. And uh, um, that's where sort of the magic, I think, happens and, and helps things to be sustainable long term. And develop that trust as well. Absolutely. And there was one part of the of the Hexaflex, which is uh, in relation to connecting to the the present moment mm -hmm. and using certain concepts such as mindfulness. So, mm -hmm. how do you, Leonard, use the concepts of mindfulness when it comes to these movements, movement experiments? Absolutely. So, um, and I'm just uh, observing myself as I'm present with. That's one of my favorite words. I just realized is absolutely. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> the um, presence or mindfulness, um, depending on when you read the the the, the, the materials from Hayes and, and other groups, um, there's a huge obviously overlap. I think that there's um, a good amount of concurrent like mindfulness kind of based literature and writings and and historical through um, uh, spiritual and religious disciplines as well um, that are it, it, everyone essentially comes to the same conclusions of what that looks like. And then I think that there are some of these kind of awareness and presence processes and, 
and attention, uh, intention, attentional processes that I think they were looking at in the in the research and and how that also influences sensory motor ability. And so when um, the way that we have developed um, sort of all of our our sort of sessions is when we look at the movement um, that uh, we we kind of scale it. So we again we we come in where people are comfortable. And so depending on if the person is comfortable with just sensory motor awareness, um, we use mindfulness related to sensory motor awareness. And so this can be um, a play off of Feldenkrais. So a lot of Feldenkrais work with um, movement experiments and, and <clears throat> movement variability and things like that. But it could also be something as simple as, as just um, attending to the position that they're at, whether they're sitting, whether they're standing, whether they're walking. Um, and we typically do look at those things deliberately for everyone just because um, we feel like people don't realize that they could in life, in action, be present and have mindfulness of um, their physical body with an activity. And so we, we incorporate it into the things that they already know uh, because it's just the place that they can get multiple repetitions. And if we can create this high volume of repetitions in life, um, then hopefully we can open up some of the some more of these flexibility processes as we go along there. So we'll typically look at sitting, we'll look at standing, we'll look at walking because those are things everyone has to do on a daily basis. And we just tell people, you know what, even if you could just just for a minute pay attention in 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 the manner of how we've kind of introduced a way to sort of observe these things and explore some options that are available to your movement. And, and I think that it's been helpful because without a doubt, by the next session, people start to notice, I had no idea that I was holding myself this way, or I was doing this, or I was making that sound, or I was doing this thing, or that kind of thing. And they start to just be a little bit aware of, um, of just some of the sort of internal aspects that are going on there. And then as we go along, we, we have one or two sessions that we really dedicate into um, sort of the sort of five senses where we start to kind of introduce a very traditional mindfulness uh, kind of activity. We usually don't call it mindfulness unless they're open to that term. Uh, we just call it awareness. And uh, we explain, again, explain, um, <laughs> we use a functional understanding of why we want to try this. We consider this uh, and then give them the option to choose whether they want to participate in it. And so we'll start with a five sensory sort of experience, <clears throat> eyes open, eyes closed. Uh, we will then lead into just some awareness of, of cognitions. And so a lot of the common um, uh, act sort of exercises, such as like the, the leaf uh, floating down the river or the clouds putting a thought on the mind. Um, I tend to like to use um, putting a thought on a whiteboard, but just starting to realize that there is this ability to create distance between the content of the thinking mind uh, and the, the sense of this observing self, which again is another aspect of, of the, uh, the hexaflux. And in that realm, what that opens up to is later on when we start to introduce values and we start to introduce decision-making, um, it gives them a place they can go to where they can kind of step back and they can sort of acknowledge and not deny these thoughts, but then sort of decide, does this lead me towards a value-oriented direction? Um, you know, does this lead me towards you know, the things that are going to uh, move me into a kind of a healthy movement wellness or any other aspect of it, depending on what, uh, you know, what we, we identified uh, together as, as, as values. And um, essentially, uh, then we add the final piece, which is 
um, uh, just being able to sit with emotions and, and just uh, being exposed to emotions and realizing that there is a sensory aspect to emotions that are always felt physically in the body. And that physical awareness in the body um, allows us to open up, especially with more complex cases, the, the uh, ability to discuss the need for potentially some, some counseling and things like that when we start to realize this emotion is present with these thoughts that are unrelated to anything else, but then there are, are thoughts that are generated and all these things. And these may be worthwhile exploring because all of a sudden it became real, it became physical. They could sense it in their body and they could see how it manifested. And that only really became meaningful to them because they'd already spent two or three sessions working in sensory motor stuff. <laughs> and in that, that realm, they, 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 they now have the ability to start to kind of engage with like, wait a second, there are these other layers to it. And then the final step is we start to bring that into the movement. So when they pick something up, whether they're um, picking up a weight or if it's uh, someone who wants to get back to weightlifting, deadlifting, um, we have them go through that process in function where it's, there's the sensory motor aspects of it. There's the um, cognitive thinking of the memories that come up. What are the rules or the judgments? What are your, what, what's coming up regarding the past? What are you predicting might happen? Um, and then also what emotions are present and, and are those emotions not only present maybe in the painful area, but could they be going other areas and, and kind of really bringing a person into the, the actual um, exercise or movement um, from a full kind of person perspective. And so that's, that's sort of usually how we scale it as we go along. Awesome. It's definitely something that's not taught in PT school, I imagine. So no, not so much, not so much, not that I'm aware of. So, so it's great that you had the experience. You, you must have gone through, you mentioned that you've gone through the, the process yourself. Uh, you also reach out to psychologists. So I think for those that who are a bit lost when it comes to these concepts, would that be your, your first port of call to reach out to professionals in the area get the experience yourself so then you can understand it deeper and then apply it. Absolutely. And I think even, you know, purchasing the books and, and really thinking of the books from the perspective of this to yourself before you do anything with a client, um, no one should be guiding anyone through anything that they haven't gone through themselves and, 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 and struggled with it and brought up coal and, and, and just um, realized how, how much is there. And, and to know the importance of, of having uh, that other professional on board that can help them through some of the, the really the, the, the hard stuff as they go along there. And I think that's, that's, that's what we owe in that transition. You know, in certain states, you know, in my state, actually, we have the ability to, um, our, our scope does include mental disorder as, as part of our scope. So we're, we're, we can comfortably go there, but we know, you know, unless we have gone through, you know, a full comes kind of psychology uh, coursework and um, supervision and all those kind of things. That's not for us. We didn't get into this profession for that. We're not trying to be psychologists. But there's so many of these things that are very basic human skills that we all desperately need to get better at first for ourselves and then learn how to be able to teach people these basic skills. And I think that's, that's where, um, where the really magic happens with helping our clients to move forward is when we can take that transition from ourselves to the, um, to the ability to teach other these, these life skills as a whole. Awesome. I wanted to, to move on to the, the concept of empowerment. And it's been, it's been a theme in the way that you, you mentioned that you practice and going on to now telehealth, the, our ability to help people self-manage 
their conditions is, is of utmost importance. There was a quote I wanted to, to share, which you, you shared in your page. It's, don't be so eager to help a man lay down his burden. Instead, help him carry his burden. And I feel like a lot of us might get stuck into trying to, to help out because we are all empaths in, in this profession. We all like to help others. And in the long term, that might actually be serving a, an unhelpful purpose. So could you tell us a bit more about the concept of empowering patients and, and how you would do that in practice? Absolutely. I'm, I'm hoping you can kind of hear me. I'm having a little bit of a cutting out of the, the stream here. Uh, seem okay? Yeah. Can you? Um, here's my absolutely again. I, it's always funny when you do this, these interviews, how you, <laughs> you default to those. Um, so it's, it's a, yeah, it's a really, um, it's a really uh, cool little quote there. Um, and I think it's a good summary. And so the way that, that I think that I can probably, uh, I'm going to add one other statement to it. Um, which is the Stephen Hayes statement, which is that, um, something may feel good, but does it live well? And, um, and so this is sort of like, a, that, that other piece of it is there's a lot of ways that we can um, make things feel good. And, uh, but how, you know, where does that lead us in the long term? And so the way that I've sort of, um, looked at, uh, some of these, these processes and some of these, um, things that we discuss in, in, in our framework is we clump it all under awareness and under awareness, we, we include, um, sort of awareness options. Like where, where does this lead me to? Um, and so, you know, things that we can lead towards with awareness is that one option could be symptom modification. So we may uh, modify symptoms. And, and again, whether from an exercise perspective, from a manual therapy perspective, from any kind of taping or whatever the, you know, external input uh, that, that may be, um, we have the ability to modify symptoms. Similarly, with, with psychology and CBT, there are ways that you can feel better when you're, you know, you know, you can improve your mood. There are different tools that you can do that can modify your symptoms and, and at least momentarily take the bad thoughts or whatever the case may be. It may be. And so symptom modification is one direction, but one other kind of, um, kind of awareness option is this, this, this realm of just behavior change. And so the reason I, I say that that's um, important to, to mention by itself is that, you know, behavior change um, can tie into so many different things. It doesn't necessarily have to be towards improving symptoms. I mean, people can get on with life with pain and they can take it with them in a meaningful way and they can, they can incorporate it into their life. And it's not ignoring it. It's not getting rid of it. It's just, it's actually part of living and it's, it's, it's an important part for them. It, it serves as a little bit of a barometer of, of how they should gauge things as, as a whole there. And so the behavior change can be multifactorial. Again, it can be from, you know, increasing loading capacity as a whole there. It could be behavior change towards self-care, uh, um, looking at, uh, you know, emotional and cognitive uh, pieces as well. Um, it is uh, behavior change to the littlest thing. Maybe it's little habits or movements and things that we identify during the day. I'm like, is that really necessary? Is there a value for me to change some of these things. Um, I, I saw you, you, you had uh, shared uh, the, the sounds and, and behavioral mannerisms. Sometimes just noticing that you're doing that and that changing the behavior um, can be helpful in and of its own. It doesn't necessarily have to change the symptoms. And then the final paradigm 
um, I, I, or kind of final option that I think that's revealed through through awareness is is just the ability to process um, what's going on in us as a person, as as a human, uh, knowing that there's a sensory domain to it, a sensory experience, that there's a cognitive experience, that there's an emotional experience, and I think that um, I think that um, being comfortable and willing to go in those places in the long term just opens up the world for I think a lot of people and I think knowing just that for that purpose which is just to make sense of what's going on processing what's going on physically processing what's going on cognitively processing what's going emotionally I think is is is, is a direction and a uh, a meaningful thing to participate in and so this idea that everything has to be symptomatifying and alleviating and improving on them I think that, you know, it's, it's one of like three and likely many other options. These are just how I kind of categorize them at this point in time. Um, and I think that it's probably the smallest of, of the piece. And there's certainly an overlap between behavior change processing that can yield symptom modification, but that's not the goal. That's just like an added bonus for the moment. The goal is the journey and is that, that idea of like, how do we orient someone towards uh, a value-oriented um, life and 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 trajectory, and certainly our ability to move is a huge part of us being able to live in this life. And so I think that for us, again, in movement profession, to take on values-oriented, process-based um, kind of approaches, I think is is really important because we're really trying to help people to get back into life, and and, and that's a lot more than than we we were taught and we went into this maybe originally for. Awesome. So using our expertise as, as movement professionals and having that framework where it's driven by that person's meaningful values and activities and not just going straight down the, the symptom modification route, though that might be where that person is ready for and willing to do at the moment. However, knowing that there are other avenues for us to use our knowledge and expertise of movement within this framework for that person's long-term self-management. It's an excellent summary. <laughs> cool. I was waiting for the absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was like, I'm, I'm trying to catch it. I'm trying to. <laughs> You're observing the thought we'll of you about to say absolutely. That's going to be my mission. I'm going to see if I can make the rest of this <laughs> without it. So we'll, we'll see if I'm successful in that little intervention there. <laughs> Awesome, mate. So the, uh, the other question I had for you was about the BPS model. So there's a, perhaps a few misconceptions about the BPS model. We go through university, we've had perhaps minimal, if any, exposure to it. Then we, we, go, to, we go through Instagram, through Facebook, we see it uh, everywhere with infographics and, and some explanations, but perhaps people might be a misconstruing or misunderstanding the the concepts of it in action so what does bps look like in action for you leonard well i'd say it looks a lot like what we talked about up to this point <laughs> so that would be one one piece of it um i think the other piece with uh, the bps um model apps really framework is i think as many people have noted is that you know the the three little circles um, being connected is not as accurate as it really being one circle and, and just kind of really realizing that it's impossible to separate out movement from cognition, from emotions. And so really owning up to the idea that, you know, this, this 
is the way that movement is 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 functioning is that we have to look at what this person's thoughts about what they're they're doing their intentions their history with it um their relationships if we talk about relational frame theory how that ties into kind of the organization of of stimulus and response and things like that um but the other um piece of this too is that um you know if we if we back the bus up a little bit more i think that there's there's two aspects to or two ways to look at the the bps model and um i think that this is this is probably one of the challenges that i think that's 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 been present for a lot of clinicians myself included um is that i think that if we look at um how we look at the world. And so I, I recently did a little bit of a blog series on, on like world perspectives and worldviews and, and kind of uh, the um, philosophy behind different types of worldviews. And, and I want to just point out um, uh, a, a couple of the, those worldviews that we can look at the world. We, we can, um, as a human, we might look at the world um, very mechanistically, like things are, um, the whole universe is part of a machine. There are all these parts and pieces. Um, ultimately, there are parts that can be faulty. There are parts that can be um, <clears throat> replaced. There are parts that need to repair, things like that. Um, and it's this idea that essentially that everything functions like a machine. And I think that the biomedical model fits well through that. I mean, if you, when you're looking purely from that viewpoint, the biomedical model fits well. We are already start to have a little bit of trouble with trying to fit the biopsychosocial model in that 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 kind of world viewpoint. And it's not the fault of the person who's taken that viewpoint. It's just that if they're rigidly there, they might not know that there's some options. What I feel like most of us have gone through is that we started to move from a mechanistic viewpoint, but we only went like part way. We sort of went to like part way to maybe what's called an organicism kind of worldview. Where we look at, you know, the whole um, is all that matters. And the parts only matter in, in essentially the sum of the whole. <laughs> uh, and, and essentially everything um, has to do with um, this one sort of uh, interconnectedness to it. And um, from a, I would say from a scientific viewpoint, I think that the biopsychosocial model fits well in there. And I think that some of us have sort of like shifted our viewpoints between having a viewpoint looking at the world from a like mechanistic perspective and we kind of partially went over to this organicism kind of perspective and some of us have gone all the way over here or already we're here to begin with but then there's this whole thing with like context and with all these different factors that are present and and, and that there's this time piece there's this history um and there's trauma and all these things and and, and it still sort of fits in that organicism if you really kind of force it but it, you know, now we start to look at this functional aspect of how do we, how do we look at the biopsychosocial model functionally in a practical way that we want to apply this and help people with it, apply it in our lives. And this requires this shift in a perspective that I think would be to contextualism. This idea that, you know, things are, are it's the act in context. It's just things matter in the context that it's in and that there's, there's a history related to it and a timeline related to it. And so I think that um, this idea that we, um, you know, we, we, we have to understand where we're looking at things from, but then we might also have to realize is that, that in certain aspects, a certain viewpoint is going to be a little bit more efficient for us. And I think, or more effective for us. And I think functionally, 
the biopsychosocial model works much better pragmatically or in application from a contextualistic perspective. I think in the research realm, I think there's still some value to look at it from an organicism perspective. The nice thing is if you take a, a viewpoint of, of, of contextualism, you can actually kind of create a bit of a, a rules, like you could pretend to be a organicism, <laughs> kind of kind of organicist perspective, because you can sort of, um, you can sort of like create these boundaries, these artificial boundaries for the purpose of research, because if you didn't have any boundaries, you couldn't do a research study. Um, so I think that there's still some value to looking at from it from a research perspective in that realm. But I think clinically, I think we have to kind of shift our viewpoint to this uh, practical context-driven uh, lens of, of the biopsychosocial model. And what that means clinically is that the things like we talked about earlier in this, <clears throat> in this, this uh, talk uh, really come to the forefront. This, this ability to look at this interconnectedness of um, the, or the, 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 the concurrent um, presence of biological, psychological, social factors in a history of a person, this person's story, their narrative, in addition to, okay, where are they at currently? What are the, uh, what are the factors that are present? What is the context in which that this history is, is currently manifesting itself? And how do we start to sort of um, play with the available uh, context and meaningfully shift this person uh, uh, or help this person, I shouldn't say shift this person, but help this person to be able to, to, to shift uh, into a uh, more uh, workable, functional, livable life as a whole there. Hoping that sort of yep. came across. <laughs> so what, what I'm hearing is we come from the theoretical background of the biomechanical, the, the mechanistic um, body as machine, and we have different parts mm -hmm. that we need to fix or address dysfunctions. Then we evolve uh, over time into the organic kind of concept where the, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And like we're looking at all the different components of the BPS uh, model. But then we forget that when it's in practice, we need to look at the context of that person in front of us with all their relationships with how the, their actions affect them in their context. Um, and then we can look back on the organic model if we need to conduct some kind of movement experiment or have that scientific uh, framework to help that person in their context. That's what I'm hearing. Did I miss? You got it. No, I think that's a good way. It's like you're using that as long as that is being used towards moving them in a forward functional direction. It fits into the this this worldview of contextualism, particularly functional contextualism. And so, um, yeah, no, I think that's it's 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 a good good uh, overview. Um, that uh, yeah, I think it'll be a nice little pressy <laughs> version of that. So. Awesome, and that, that's such a huge paradigm shift for a lot of us clinicians who have been used to the perhaps specific diagnostic criteria. If we find this, therefore, that's causing the symptoms. Therefore, we have to fix that dysfunction or specific flaw. So I think it's, um, I think perhaps expecting that there is some evolution to so not expecting colleagues, clinicians to immediately go from this level to, to the functional contextualism model, they might have to experience it themselves. And I think we can dive into how you, how you educate, because I know that your, your role as an educator, some of the ways that you can show um, other clinicians this evolution, this process, what are some of the ways? You know, it's, uh, um, 
that's ongoing. I think that part of it is is just starting to to go back and, and think about where where the, sh the shifts occurred for me and, and is there a way to potentially um, uh, shift that a little bit more quickly um, as you were you were just talking I did think about one thing I think I think that anyone who's worked in performance um, so maybe not even with pain if we just think about like you know we look we think about um, periodization and we think about um, you know uh, someone who's working on a strength goal and I think that there's 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 this there's always you know a point where a person is going to hit essentially this theoretical kind of uh, plateau before they can break through, and it's this mysterious plateau. And 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 I, and I think that people who have been working, especially at a higher level, they realize that you know that is multifactorial. And the idea that it's just just the nutritional piece or just the modifying and you know modifying the the programming or just the you know soft tissue or whatever the case may be it, it's the realization that a lot of things have to come together for that to occur and i think if we we kind of embrace that we've all kind of intuitively in our gut known that it's always a little bit more complicated than what's 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 present and then we start to think like okay you know what the the reason that this person um is is struggling to get off the ground or struggling to get out of their seat um you know is not because they're weak it's because you know they're from a biomechanical standpoint um one is they don't maybe have knowledge cognition to understand wait a minute if i shift just a little bit forward all of a sudden uh, i appreciate some of the you know the physics related to my positioning and i'm able to find a way that's you know biomechanically a little bit more advantageous and that thoughts that we've introduced, these tips that we've introduced, already is engaging in the psychological realm. So, you know, if we expand on, on the idea that, okay, if you can give this idea, what about if someone has difficulty trying to, um, you know, um, trying to deadlift after, you know, a, a disc herniation, uh, acute disc herniation episode or something like that? Well, we, we, we're not denying that the acute disc herniation had occurred. Number one, there's a history there. There's a, you know, there's, there's on MRI, we can sort of see the, 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 the history there. There's a um, uh, archaeological history of that, that original injury that's probably still going to be present there and maybe there for the rest of, of their life. And so we're not denying that biological piece of it. We're also not denying that there is this, you know, uh, neuroendocrine physiologic event where there's uh, cascading of inflammatory uh, immune endocrine kind of molecules that are that are present there, but we also need to realize is that those were also in the presence of thoughts, beliefs, understanding of did they hear that pop? What was that noise? Um, and uh, there isn't that, or there isn't that, um, isn't there also that that fear and that uncertainty and the 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 sadness and the loss related to you know someone who might be on a progression with their lift. And I think that sometimes if we bring in into more, I'd say maybe more athletic realm, and I think that's where people, so many people in this realm 